Christ is enough. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on the idea that the glory of the gospel ministry is diffused by jars of clay. So why don't you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in your Bible, in your phone, in your tablet. Uh, the Pew Bible, it's page 936 if you want to use that too. But we're going to see the magnificence of Jesus Christ. But before we do, let's go to the author. Our Father, we want to thank you and praise you for what you've provided for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to praise him that your son is enough for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you might be sitting here today and you might have a lack of confidence. You might be thinking, well, I really can't do much for Christ or in the ministry. And maybe somebody's asked you to participate in the ministry and you just don't think you can do it. Maybe you're intimidated by your role in your family. I know I often was. In your role with your neighbors in your school. Well, today we're going to see that God diffuses his magnificent message through common messengers. Now, I looked up the word glory in Merriam-Webster, and uh, I guess he's a he, isn't he? It's not a she. I was going to say she said. That one of the definitions that really caught my attention was the idea of magnificence. You see, the word glory is repeated 17 times in the section, showing us that that is the main focus of the section. That there is a glory, there is a magnificence to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone else has said, someone else has said that the, Jesus is the glory of God. The Shekinah glory. And according to the Old Testament, this was the visible manifestation of God. The Shekinah was a radiant cloud or uh, uh, a brilliant light that came and showed the immediate presence of God. And that's what we have in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the gospel ministry is that God is with us. God lives inside of us. And that is a magnificence that we need to appreciate. See, we're going to start focusing on the triumph that we have in Jesus Christ. It's a magnificent message and it triumphs. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now this is an allusion to uh, something that happened in the Roman Empire. When a victorious general would return, he would return in a parade. And the parade would go into Rome, and he would have his soldiers behind him, and the very last thing in the parade would be the slaves. The people that they took captive and they were probably going to kill. Now in these parades, there was incense that was burning. And this made a certain uh, aroma. And so he is saying that the same aroma to the people watching the parade brought life and victory. But this aroma also indicated defeat and death to certain people there. And he's saying that is basically what we are trying to do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, ministry is basically spreading Jesus Christ, the fragrance of him, for everyone to hear. It says in verses 15 and 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? To one group, we smell good. Life to life. To the other group, we smell real bad. But let me ask you, how do you smell? Lenny was telling me before he preached a sermon in Alabama, basically saying, you know, do you have B.O.? And I know Carolyn would testify that often she has to put up with that. But how do you smell to those around you? When they smell you, do they smell Jesus Christ? Or do they smell someone else, something else? What is your soapbox? What is your obsession? If it's not Jesus Christ, you are missing out on the magnificence of the gospel ministry. Now this produces paradoxical results that we have seen. And it says in verse 17, For we are not like many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now the word here for peddler can be translated huckster. And when I think of huckster, I think of my grandfather, Red Muckle. He was a huckster. He was involved also in the uh, Irish Mafia on the north side, running the numbers. So there's all kind of things, all kind of stories I can tell you about Red Muckle. But let me tell you one my dad told me. I don't know, Aunt Jane, do you remember uh, these stories? But anyway, one time he bought 50 pounds of rotten potatoes for next to nothing. And then he bought 50 pounds of good potatoes and put them on top in the back of his huckster van on the good potatoes. And then he went up and said, hey, you want to buy this potatoes to another huckster? And the guy said, yeah, they all look good. So they exchanged the money. And as the other man was loading the potatoes onto his truck, they said, hey, what's going on? Half these potatoes are bad. And my grandfather said, well, tough. You know, I got my money, I'm going. And when it talks about a huckster, it's talking about someone who adulterates the word of God. He adulterated the product. product. He made it look like it was something that it wasn't. And Paul is talking about the false teachers that always followed him around who were huckstering the word of God. Now he goes on and he talks about the product of the ministry has changed people in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written in on our hearts and known and read by all. Now his first question, he asked the idea, he asked the question, do we need again letters of recommendation? Because they were doubting Paul. Because after Paul came to Corinth, established the church, others came in and said, you know what? Paul's not teaching the full gospel. He's teaching part of the gospel. Yeah, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to keep the Ten Commandments. That's what they were saying. They were huckstering the word of God. 
because we can see in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, uh, after this, Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Then it says that he stayed there six months teaching the word of God among them. Why would he need a letter of recommendation? He started the church. He spent a year and a half with them. That would like me being going to Cabanillas del Campo in Spain and them saying, no, we're not going to let you preach until we hear a reference for you. It's like, wait a second. I started this church. I was with you for a year and a half. But those who were coming in and huckstering the ministry deceived the people into thinking that Paul was not teaching the full gospel. Even though he was preaching the magnificent message, they thought that it wasn't the full gospel. And he talks about you yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts and known and read by all. And to show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Here he's making the distinction. We believe in new covenant ministry. You are trying to combine new covenant and old covenant. You have a Bible. What's the first part called? Old Testament. What's that mean? Old covenant. It's covering the law of Moses. And then you have the New Testament. The New Covenant. It's coming from the New Covenant that was predicted in Jeremiah chapter 31. Here he's making that distinction. That that is what had to happen. Now we have here the distinction between that which is written on the heart. And that which is written on the law of stone. We have uh, something coming up here with Charlton Heston. Can we... Go forward to Charlton Heston. There we go. That's not Charlton, but he's coming up. Now, the difference between these ministries are in the New Testament were written on your heart. The Old Testament was written on tablets of stone. So it was external. Where God promises in the New Covenant something that goes on internal. And now he goes on and talks about the superiority of the new covenant starting in chapter 3 verses 14 and 18. Now he answers the question that he asked in 2:16. In 2 Corinthians 2:16 he says, "To one a fragrance of death to death, the other a fragrance of life to life, who is sufficient for these things?" And what's the answer? Nobody. Nobody. I mean, that's an incredible responsibility. Am I responsible for someone's spiritual life or spiritual death? Am I sufficient for that? Do I have the tools that are necessary to change someone's heart? No, I don't. I am not sufficient for these things. He goes on in chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. It was made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. 
Now, one of the things he is saying here is that our adequacy begins with realizing that we are inadequate. Our adequacy in being servants of Jesus Christ begins when we realize that we are inadequate. And therefore our confidence is in God's working in people's hearts, not in our ability to persuade or do something. You see, our role in the Bible is very simple. For for example, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, we are to spread the word. In 2.17, it says we speak in Christ. Uh, 3.2, it says we delivered the message. And in 4.5, it says we proclaim Christ. See, Paul discussing this idea, the idea between the Old Testament and New Testament, is an implication that these old uh, th- these people that were opposing him were focusing on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was a complete failure. You know your Old Testament. Did Israel succeed in keeping the law of God? No. It was a horrible failure. They went into captivity into Babylon. Then after the Babylonians came, the media Persians came. The Persians were nicer than the Babylonians. They let them return to the land. But after them came the Greeks and after them came the Romans. So the Old Testament ends in a sad situation. In an abject failure. And so he's saying here, why do we want to go back to that which failed? Let's move on to that which worked. And that is what he is saying here, that we need to move on. Let's not follow these false teachers and let's go on to the new covenant ministry. Just at the point when Israel was failing, the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah talks again and again about the failure, especially the failure of idolatry. That's what caused the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses uh, 31 to 34, it talks about that new covenant. Now, we're not going to talk about the whole thing, but we're going to focus on some very important things. The new covenant, which God promised in the book of Jeremiah that he was going to bring in the future, was not like the covenant that they made with their fathers. It was new. It wasn't like that covenant that he made with their fathers of the land of Egypt. And the important things about it is, I will write it on their hearts. It's not going to just be written in stone. It's going to be in the hearts of the people. And the most important aspect was it is, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Under the Old Testament, the sins were covered. Yom Kippurim is the day of covering. Sins were covered, but under Jesus Christ, they're totally taken away. You see, that's what the gospel ministry is. It's kind of like this. Say, for instance, you are irresponsible and you get yourself in debt. You borrow money from a a relative and you borrow $10,000, million from that relative. But you can't pay it back. And so the relative says, you know, I feel sorry that you can't pay me back. I am going to give you the money To pay your debt to me. Well that's a good deal. I'll take that deal. But that's what the gospel is. 
that we owe a debt to God that we cannot pay. And God feels bad about it. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm your relative. I, I want to be your relative. And so he gives us the money through the death of Jesus Christ, gives us the spiritual currency to buy ourselves into his love. But we don't buy ourselves into his love. That's something that Jesus Christ did on the cross. That is the magnificent message that we preach. And this message was inaugurated by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. When we take communion, Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And the basis is the forgiveness of sins. It is entered into by faith and is lived out by dependence on the Holy Spirit. So we see that again and again. It gives us a new ability because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. It was weakened by the flesh, the old covenant, but the new covenant gives us a new way to serve through Jesus Christ. And just as reliance on human rather than divine authority with letters of recommendation is short-sighted and dangerous, so to attempt to fulfill God's righteousness apart from his enablement is impossible. Let me ask you a question. Is living the Christian life hard? Is it hard? No, it's not hard. It's impossible. You can't do it. You are not sufficient to do it. How often do you love your enemy? How often do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? I have to confess that every day. You see, the requirements that Jesus gives us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, are impossible. Only he can forgive us from that, but only he can give us the ability to do what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, let's move on. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory. Now let's stop there. The ministry of death. What is that? It's the 10 commandments. It was carved in letters of stone. So we know exactly what it's talking about. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses face because of the glory, which was being brought to an end. He's using the example here. When Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, he was in the presence of God for 40 days. He came down, his face was glowing. So he put a veil over his face so that people wouldn't see that he was losing the glow. And he's using this illustration to talk about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, the essential problem of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, was that it could not give life. It showed us what sin was, but it could not give us life. And that's the essential problem. And these false teachers who were huckstering the Word of God didn't know that. Someone has said, the law is not soap. It is a mirror. 
It's a mirror. We look at it. We see we're dirty. But it has no facility to clean us. The law is not soap. It's a mirror. It shows us that we're dirty. It shows us that we need a Savior. And then we come to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and His magnificent message. And He totally forgives us of our sin. Maybe there's someone here today that has never accepted that magnificent message. Then all you need to do is put your trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. And say, Lord, I'll take the payment that you made on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to commit myself to you as my Savior and my Lord. Because the law is not soap. It is a mirror. He continues in chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more that which is permanent. The Ten Commandments has come to an end. Now, nine of those are incorporated in the New Testament. But as a law code, it has come to an end. You see, this is sort of like when I walk in the morning in Cabanillas del Campo. I have an early riser. It's not like I set my alarm, but I get up pretty early. And I like to walk in the fields. They're not lighted. But there are so many beautiful, clear mornings in Spain that I can walk by the light of the moon. And I am followed by a moon shadow. Moon shadow, moon shadow for those who are about my age. But anyway, it's just a neat connection with God. Because I have this light that comes from a source 250,000 miles away. Reflecting the light from another source that God made 93 million miles away. And so it's just a little communion with God to see that he in his natural revelation is showing me that he's there. But, as it gets closer to sunrise, it gradually gets light. And that which caused the shadow as I was walking before, totally disappears. Because the sun comes and with its magnificent brilliance, totally obscures the light of the moon. You can hardly see the moon in the sky after that. And the light of the moon is no longer significant because the light of the sun has come. And he's talking about the magnificence, the glory of the New Testament. The glory of the New Covenant. That it obscures everything else that preceded it. And this is what we're talking about here. Uh, not like Moses in verse 13, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But he goes on and he says in verses 14 and 16, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's saying, hey, talking about veils, let's apply it to their hearts. Let's apply it to their ability to understand. You see, they can't understand because God has to shine in their hearts 
We continue in verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It goes on. And we all with unveiled face like Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the spirit. Believers are transformed into Christ's likeness by gazing intently on him. To experience this glory, we must be in the presence of his glory. We must take our time with him. We must be in the word. We must be praying and asking him to illumine his glory to us in those situations. And again, we said the word glory is repeated 17 times in this chapter. So we know that is the focus. Move on to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, starting in verses 1 to 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. And that helped me many times in Spain. Because there were times, like when our ministry fell apart early on, that we lost heart. It was discouraging. But we have renounced disgraceful, undermined ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The truth of the scripture is the most important. When it's talking about the, the letter kills, it's nothing but the scripture in general. It's talking about specifically the Ten Commandments. He goes on and he says... In verse 4, in their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, these people are blind because of the theological idea of total depravity. They're also blind because Satan has blinded them. Do I have the ability to unblind them? No. What comes up is, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, and that's Satan. Then it goes on in verse 5, it says, For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here comes the most important verse. Verse 6, For God has said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. These people who are doubly blind, do they need me? Do they need some argument that I have that they've never heard? They need the God who said, let there be light to shine in their heart and give to them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To look at him is to know what God is like. Having such knowledge is a great treasure. And this is our responsibility. Wherever we are, our message to the unsaved world is Jesus Christ. Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when I was among you, I determined to know nothing else but Christ and him crucified. When you're with an unbeliever, how do you smell? You smell like Christ? Are you talking about Christ? The importance of Christ? Are you talking about something else? That is so much less significant. It can't approach the magnificence of the message 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we end with the frailty of the ministers. Verse 7. For we have this treasure, and that treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Who is adequate for these things? Nobody. But God can shine in the people's hearts. This week our family lost our Uncle Larry. And one thing I'll always remember about Uncle Larry is that he and my aunts would every morning pray over the telephone. And they would pray for all of us to come to know Christ. And at last count, I think that there were 35 of us in the family who came to know Christ through their telephone prayers. They prayed that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine in each one of us. And that's why there are so many muckles sitting over here. Because of Uncle Larry, Aunt Laverne, and Aunt Rosella. And we praise the Lord for them. All right. Where are we? Well, we're common pots. That's who you are. That's who I am. Nothing really all that significant about us. It's kind of like a tin can today. Someone says it's a tin can. I say, well, yeah, I've got 20 tin cans in my house. What's the big deal? Well, in those days, they had the clay pots. And the clay pots were what they used to store, to do all kind of things. It was their chamber pot also. Uh, but God wants to make this sharp contra- contrast so that there would be no question of the source of the gospel and its all-surpassing power. Salvation is the work of God, not of men. And he uses ordinary pots, sometimes cracked pots, like us, to do this. God diffuses his magnificent message through weak, common messengers. Our adequate, our adequacy begins with realizing that we are inadequate. And so therefore, if you're questioning your confidence, that's fine. You're a clay pot. The important thing is the magnificent message that God diffuses through weak and common messengers. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you that you have allowed us as clay pots to be the recipients and the diffusers of your magnificent message of your son in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to have our confidence in you and not wallow in self-pity that we are inadequate because we are, but you are adequate and you make us adequate through the ministry of the new covenant. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can